0: Hi again, everybody. It's Nurse Mo. Welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I am thrilled that we are getting to hang out together today. And we'll be talking about pediatric respiratory distress in episode 140. So before we dive into the episode, I do like to take a moment to reach back out to all of you who've taken the time to Be so kind as to write a review about the podcast. So this one goes to an individual who goes by the name Rarity is Divine. And Rarity says, I love these podcasts. I'm currently a junior in high school and just became a CNA. These podcasts have been very comforting and have helped me feel prepared for what to expect in nursing school. The study guides online have also been extremely helpful in some of the prerequisite classes I'm taking. Thank you for all your hard work and giving me a head start. Oh my gosh. Talk about a head start. Sounds like you gave yourself a head start. You're a junior in high school. You're already taking prerequisites and working as a CNA. You might just be a super human. I'm so proud of you. You seem like you're really dedicated and excited about this career and you're going to make an amazing nurse. So thank you so much for reaching out and taking the time to let me know how the podcast Podcast is helping you. So today, the topic I want to share with all of you is why pediatric respiratory distress is a really, really big deal. So respiratory distress in children is of special concern due to a lot of different factors. And the main one, and if you guys learn nothing else from this episode today, is this. Children are not simply small adults. Okay? You got that? All right. There are actually a lot of differences between pediatric and adult airways, including the size, so it's much smaller in diameter and in length, its position, so the larynx is located more toward the anterior in kids than it is in adults, and in its shape. The airway itself narrows at the cricoid ring, whereas in adults, it's more narrow At the vocal cords. So, the other big difference is the size of the tongue in pediatrics, which is relatively larger in the oropharynx than it is in an adult, making occlusion more likely and intubation more difficult. So, since you're probably not going to be intubating children, I want you to think mainly about the two things that would be affecting your nursing interventions and assessments and, you know, the things that you can actually do and watch out for. It's going to be the fact that that airway is much smaller in size and and that the tongue itself can be an occluding element. So, again, that airway short and narrow. So, Think about it this way. A newborn has an average internal tracheal diameter of 2.5 millimeters. Okay, so I want you to picture, unless you're driving or walking near, you know, a cliff, close your eyes for a second and picture what 2.5 millimeters actually is in measurement. There is not much room here for edema or obstruction of any, any magnitude at all. Even a very small obstruction will greatly increase airflow resistance. And by obstruction, I mean it could be a foreign object or it could be obstruction caused by edema. And this greatly increases airflow resistance, putting the patient at risk for severe respiratory distress. Now, as the child gets older, that tracheal diameter does increase. By age one, it's closer to about 4.5 millimeters, still very, very small. By age six, it's closer to six millimeters. That one's easy to remember. And by about 14 or so, it's approaching adult sizes of about eight millimeters diameter on the low end. So in addition to that smaller that narrow shorter airway, pediatric patients also have some physiological differences that are going to make them more prone to respiratory distress and respiratory failure. So for starters, infants have significantly higher oxygen consumption than adults do. One study even showed an infant's demands being closer to 6 Mills per kilogram per minute versus three mils per kilogram per minute in an adult. So that's that's vastly different, right? Further, infants have lower functional residual capacity. So that's the amount of air that's left in the lungs after exhalation. They have lower functional residual capacity. So even very brief periods of apnea or periods without oxygen can cause desaturation to occur quickly. Also, from my observation of pediatric patients at the bedside, they do tend to decompensate quickly. What happens with kids is they truck right along, they compensate, their little bodies just chug right along, they do okay until, bam, they go off the cliff and they're not okay. So when kids crump, they crump hard and they crump fast. So any pediatric respiratory distress should be viewed as an extremely, extremely urgent situation, requires very, very close monitoring and very fast expert intervention. So I'm not saying this to scare you guys. I don't want to scare you away from becoming a PEDS nurse or a NICU nurse if that's your dream. But I just want you to know if you're uh, working with kids, your index of suspicion that something is wrong or could go vastly wrong needs to be like the dial on that needs to be cranked up to 10. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about some common causes of respiratory distress in children. So there are a lot of different causes of respiratory distress uh, in kids ranging from acute conditions like upper airway obstruction, Uh, You know, kids love putting things in their mouths to chronic conditions such as cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease. So today we'll be looking at some acute conditions as these can escalate very quickly and pose significant danger to our littlest patients. Note that trauma, traumatic injury, can cause respiratory failure as well. We won't really be talking about trauma. I feel like that could be a whole episode on its own pediatric traumas. So again, we'll be talking more about these non-trauma, more medical-focused causes. So some acute and life-threatening respiratory conditions that you are probably likely to see in kids include, first of all, upper airway obstruction. So airway obstruction, again, can be from a foreign body, from, you know, the kid is eating and doesn't swallow well or puts whatever into his mouth, airway closure from anaphylaxis or epiglottitis, which we'll talk about more in a little bit, or even laryngospasm secondary to hypocalcemia. So again, any kind of airway edema or inflammation is going to be significantly more impactful in a child or an infant because that airway is much more narrow than it is in an adult. Even that small amount of swelling can greatly increase that airflow resistance. So kids don't have to have a lot of edema going on to get into a lot of trouble very quickly. Asthma will cause bronchospasm, it causes that accumulation of mucus, both which narrow the airways making it difficult for the patient to ventilate adequately. Respiratory tract infections, which seems like kids get every single infection out there, right? So respiratory tract infections can lead to respiratory distress, such as with epiglottitis. (laughs) That one, that one scares me a lot. I once had an adult patient with epiglottitis and I was on pins and needles the entire shift. Um, Croup, which can um, adversely affect the upper airway leading to obstruction. Pneumonia bronchiolitis, which is often related to RSV, but can also be due to influenza. There's COVID-19, of course, and an infection of the trachea called tracheitis. So these would be some, you know, some common respiratory tract infections that you might see in kids. Other times, the cause of the respiratory compromise is related to a cardiovascular condition, such as those kids with congenital heart disease, Pediatric patients who have a right-to-left shunt have decreased amounts of oxygen entering systemic circulation. And when you have decreased amounts of oxygen entering systemic circulation, this leads to hypoxia. In a right-to-left shunt, deoxygenated blood bypasses the gas exchange process in the lungs and is sent out into systemic circulation without going by the lungs and picking up oxygen. And this greatly reduces oxygen delivery in the tissues. Congenital conditions which result in a right to left shunt include tetralogy of fallot, transposition of the great arteries, pulmonary atresia, and Eisenmenger syndrome. Now, as a side note, shunting can also occur in pneumonia. It can occur in atelectasis and with pulmonary arteriovenous malformation. So when somebody says right to left shunt, I want you to think about normally the blood goes to the lungs to pick up oxygen and then is sent out into systemic circulation. Something in that process is broken, okay? Either they have a congenital defect or maybe a pneumonia. Something is causing the blood to um, not get new oxygen as it makes that pass in the systemic vasculature. So it just goes back out into the body without picking up more oxygen. And over time, you know, this can drastically, drastically lower the patient's blood oxygen levels. Now, some physiologic conditions that can lead to respiratory distress include any abnormality of the chest wall and thoracic cavity that restrict lung expansion. So think about pectus s. As- I'm going to say this wrong, pectus excavatum. There we go. I think I did it. Pectus excavatum, which is a concave depression in the chest wall. So think about chest wall movement, uh, chest, you know, lung capacity with something like that's going to be reduced, Um, a condition called asphyxiating thoracic dystrophy, and even in severe cases of kyphosis or scoliosis, if they're very severe, that chest wall abnormality can restrict lung expansion. So if you have a patient with one of these conditions, you want to be acutely aware of their respiratory status at all times, especially if they're coming in to see you because they've got something on top of that, like an upper respiratory infection, they've got a pneumonia, they've got an asthma, something like that. Pediatric patients with chronic respiratory conditions such as bronchopulmonary dysplasia and cystic fibrosis are at increased risk for respiratory compromise. In addition, any condition that affects the patient's neuromuscular status can put them at risk for infection and occlusion due to weakened musculature. So think about muscular dystrophy, spinal muscular atrophy, things like that. So what are we going to do to assess our young pediatric patient in respiratory distress? So your assessment of the child, you know, overall, you're getting kind of an overall observation, overall impression of the patient. If the child is alert keenly responsive to you, uh, keenly responsive to their environment and playful, it's not likely that they're in respiratory distress. The child who is listless or even agitated deserves a closer look. With that said, You know, a child who's crying loudly, they're also breathing. So you can be a little bit more relieved if you hear a child screaming at the top of their lungs, okay? When I'm working in the recovery room and we've got a little baby in there and it's screaming its little head off, you know, normally I'd probably be like, oh my gosh, there's a baby crying like if I was on a plane or something or in a restaurant. But when I'm in the recovery room and I hear that sound, that is music to my ears. I know that baby is breathing just fine. So next thing we're going to look at is the child's work of breathing. Are they tachypnic? Tachypnea varies by age because as you've probably learned by now, if you're in pediatrics, all the vital signs ranges they change so much as the child gets older. That's one reason that pediatric clinicals were so hard for me. I was just so confused until I started carrying around a little index card with all the standard ranges on it. So if you haven't started doing that, definitely give that a try. But the, the ranges change as the child gets older. For example, a newborn can have, you know, a respiratory rate of 50, which for that newborn could be completely normal. But for the child who's 18 months old, well, that's a tachypnea. So you need to know your reference ranges very well. As the child obviously gets older, the rate's going to more closely resemble that of an adult. And always, always, you guys, when you're looking at what is considered an abnormal vital signs, you want to defer to the resource that your school is utilizing or your facility is utilizing because it can be different, okay? You know, you hear about a normal respiratory rate, for example, I have heard eight to 20 uh, 10 to 24, 12 to 22, like there's different ranges out there. So if your instructor says that the range is 35 to 50, go by that, okay? And then when you go to clinical, go by what um, that facility utilizes. But, you know, also use your common sense as well with that. Some normal ranges for various age groups are listed on the article associated with this. I'm not going to tell you all of them now because it would just be mind-numbingly boring, but they are on the website. So you can go to the straight dot nursingstudentcom website, and I'll link to it in the show notes as well. So you can kind of see a range. And this was uh, brought about from a 2011 study that looked at various age groups and defined normal respiratory ranges. The other thing you want to look at, you've assessed if they have tachypnea as based on their age range. You're going to be looking to see if they are using their accessory muscles. Retractions, which are present when accessory muscles are helping the patient to breathe, are a definitive sign of respiratory distress. So you got to move the clothing out of the way, you guys. You've got to get your eyeballs on the patient's chest, um, on their neck, and on their abdomen. You're looking for the skin to visibly uh, have a lot of movement with the breast. So like at the neck, you'll see the skin pull inward as those muscles work to try to help the patient breathe. You may see it at the sternum, the ribs, etc. So you're watching for accessory muscle use. Other signs to be keenly aware of would be nasal flaring. So look at their little noses and see if they're flaring with breath. Grunting is an ominous sign. Severe respiratory distress is present. Head bobbing as well. These are signs the child is having significant difficulty. Many times the child will assume what is called a position of comfort or a tripod position. So typically this is sitting upright, leaning slightly forward, mouth probably open, jaw neck thrust forward to open the airway. Often the child will prefer to be on their parent's lap if that is available to them. If the child is also drooling, be very aware that this child can have a partial airway obstruction. Okay, so if the saliva is just like running out of their mouth, I want you to think airway obstruction. Okay. So if you've got your child sitting on the lap, and I think I talk about this in a little bit, don't try to move the child off the parent's lap unless you absolutely have to that's going to agitate them. Position of comfort also means if they're happier on mom's lap and calmer, fine, or on dad's lap or whatever, leave them there. A child in respiratory failure will most likely have a decreased level of consciousness, be uh, somnolent or listless. More significant work of breathing and grunting may be present when when they're actually in respiratory failure. So when you listen to the lungs of a child, you could hear diminished airflow and the child could even start out to but then become bradypneic okay too slow of breathing and that occurs as the child gets tired and heads toward complete respiratory failure. Additionally, skin signs as a child's heading into that respiratory failure zone will show poor color such as pallor or even cyanosis at the nail beds or around the mouth. This would be extremely concerning if you saw that. These are very ominous signs requiring immediate intervention. Additionally, as that respiratory failure continues, it leads to cardiac Failure. Bradycardia in a pediatric patient, especially one having respiratory difficulty, is a very, very, very concerning sign of potential imminent cardiac arrest. Okay? Most cardiac arrests in children are precipitated by respiratory distress, respiratory failure. So, uh, getting on that respiratory issue as soon as you can is going to help prevent. Cardiac arrest in children. Okay, so when you listen to the child's lungs who is in respiratory distress, you could hear all kinds of abnormal things, right? You could have wheezing, which is a sign that airflow um, is going through some collapsed, disrupted airways. So wheezing happens a lot in things like asthma. Crackles or rails, which are associated with fluid accumulating in the alveoli. You could hear strider, which is that it's a that high pitched noise due to turbulent airflow, airflow through a narrow upper airway. Um, strider is very concerning. You'd want to hop on that right away. And then diminished breath sounds, especially in cases of obstruction due to either a foreign body or severe airway narrowing. So, the patient, let's talk about the patient with asthma for a hot minute. Um, let's say they're wheezing when you listen to their breath sounds, and then they're not. Uh, If you haven't done any intervention to improve the asthma, there's a very good chance that it didn't just get better on its own. It actually got so much worse that there's no airflow. So if the wheezing is gone, it's probably because those airways are now too narrow and you actually have really diminished airflow. So just because the wheezing improves doesn't or, you know, goes away doesn't always mean that the problem has gone away. It could be that the problem has actually gotten worse. So let's talk about some nursing interventions for little guys and gals in pediatric respiratory distress. So the best, best chance the child has for um, when they have this condition is early intervention. And we're going to typically start with the least invasive intervention first. That's a general kind of nursing thing that we do. So looking at airway obstruction, if that airway is obstructed by a foreign body, you know, clearing the airway is a great way to relieve that, right? And you guys all learned how to do that using your BLS guidelines, Based on if it's, you know, if it's an infant, it's the back blows and the chest thrusts. While in children over, I think it's 12 months of age, it's those abdominal thrusts or the Heimlich maneuver, depending on what um, how old they are. If it's safe and it's indicated for this patient, suctioning the oral pharynx can remove secretions, can remove blood, vomitus, mucus, things that could be occluding that airway. Be very, very, very careful. Of your patient with epiglottitis, however, stimulating the airway, stimulating the oropharynx can cause it to close even further, okay? So nothing goes in the mouth if your patient has epiglottitis. Um, That patient's going to be drooling. They're going to have difficulty swallowing. It's very scary. Don't be uh, going in there with the tongue blade and trying to eyeball it, okay? It could cause it to get worse, you want to allow the child to assume that position of comfort. Again, most often sitting on mom or dad's lap, upright, leaning slightly slightly forward with their mouth open, that jaw, that neck kind of thrust forward. Um, if at all possible, leave them in place on their caregiver's lap. If you have to move them, it would be in order to do some kind of an intervention that you can't administer with them sitting um, with their caregiver. Because again, moving them away from that comfort person is going to uh, make things worse. And, you know, there's a risk and obviously maybe, you know, a risk benefit ratio to assume there. So as much as you can leave them on mom and dad's lap, but if you do have to move them, I mean, obviously you wouldn't forego treatment just because of that. You want to maintain airway patency. You could do this with a nasopharyngeal airway or an oral pharyngeal airway, a jaw thrust or chin lift maneuver. Typically those nasal pharyngeal airways, the NPA is used in your more awake patient. You wouldn't put an OPA in a patient who's awake because that's going to cause them to gag and probably throw up. So um, that would be counterintuitive and the OPA wouldn't stay in place anyway. For children that aren't critical and requiring emergent intervention, sometimes the MD will simply order some oxygen, possibly some humidified oxygen to administer, and that may be all that they need. You want to avoid agitating the patient again or doing anything that will increase their oxygen demand. So if they don't need their blood pressure checked, don't check it. It's so agitating for children. Um, If you can avoid... Basically agitating them in any way at all do that. Give obviously all the medications as ordered. The patient may need some nebulized meds such as albuterol to open restricted airways, Um, maybe racemic epinephrine for croup. Other patients may need a combination of epinephrine, benadryl, and solumedrol for anaphylaxis or angioedema, antibiotics for infection, etc. If the child is critically um, in respiratory distress, he will most likely need assisted ventilation with the BVM and could also require an oropharyngeal airway to maintain airway patency, and then the very sick ones will require intubation or even a needle cricothyroidotomy if intubation would profi- uh, prove to be impossible or, you know, too difficult because of facial trauma, for example, or severe epiglottitis. Keep in mind that intubating a child is a very difficult procedure, so it must be done with great care and with the most expensive experienced individual available, okay? So again, with that epiglottitis, I believe the standard of care is to avoid intubation because it's going to be very difficult intubation and take too long. And again, remember, children don't have that functional residual capacity. In intubation, you know, we pre-oxygenate patients typically so that we, you know, we ramp up their PAO2 prior to intubation, but there's a period where they're not getting any ventilation or any oxygen as the practitioner is performing the intubation. Kids just don't have that capacity for that. So anytime there's a difficult airway like epigotitis, we avoid that and they go straight to doing the crike, um, which is that putting that needle into the uh, throat and uh, obtaining an airway in that manner. So um, the one time I took care of a patient with epiglottitis, it was not a child. Again, it was an adult, but we had a a crike tray, uh, you know, at the bedside just in case we needed it. Thank goodness they did not. Okay, you guys. So I've got a lot of resources on the website about respiratory disorders in general. So I will link to a few of those in the show notes. But how about we do a couple pod quiz questions? Because I know you all love those. And I'm in the process of developing a premium podcast that is basically all going to be Pod quizzes, So it's just all pod quizzes all the time. And it'll include some reference sheets and some bonus uh, downloads and things like that. So I hope to have that operational within the next month or so. So you can be on the lookout for that. But in the meantime, let's throw a few pod quiz questions in here. What is the main reason that pediatric airways are different from adults? It's going to be that smaller diameter of the airway. Excellent. Who has higher oxygen consumption, an infant or an adult? Very good. That was the infant. Excellent. Do infants have higher or lower functional residual capacity than adults? that is lower, they have lower functional residual capacity. And so what does this mean? Basically, this means that any brief period of apnea or period without oxygenation can cause desaturation to occur very quickly. What electrolyte imbalance can cause laryngospasm? That would be hypocalcemia. Excellent. What kind of shunting is involved when deoxygenated blood bypasses the gas exchange process and is sent into systemic circulation? That is the right to left shunt. Very, very good. How are you going to assess for the use of accessory muscles? You're going to get to the skin, you guys, you're going to get their shirts off, you're going to put your eyeballs on their chest, abdomen, neck, get your eyeballs on the skin. In a conscious patient, would you use an NPA or an OPA to maintain airway patency? That would be an NPA in that conscious patient. And what would be a position of comfort? Exactly. You guys are so good. So a position of comfort is often, you know, sitting up, leaning slightly forward, may have their mouth open to get in more air, may have their... Jaw and neck thrust forward slightly, um, sitting in, did I say upright position? I hope I did. And that is often sitting with their caregiver or on their caregiver's lap, especially if they're really young. And let's say you have a child sitting in that position and they're also drooling. What are you highly suspicious is going on? You would be very worried that this child has epiglottitis or some kind of upper airway obstruction. Maybe it's a foreign body or severe swelling, like as with an anaphylaxis or something like that. Okay, you guys did amazing on your pod quiz, and I can't wait to see you back here next week when we'll be diving into six things you might be worrying about for clinical, but we're going to clear all those worries away after we talk next week. So if you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast, if you do that, you'll automatically get next week's episode. I will see you then. And if you're following me on Instagram, I will see you even before then. So go check it out, straight A nurse. And that is on Instagram. I hope to see you there. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.